Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this holiday week... We are revisiting one of my favorite episodes from this past year with the always hilarious and delightful Phoebe Robinson. Phoebe and I spoke back in August, just as she was launching her new podcast, Black Fraser. We talked about her unique journey from struggling to get by as a blogger to co-hosting the massive Two Dope Queens specials on HBO with her friend and comedy partner, Jessica Williams. One reason why I wanted to reshare this episode is that tomorrow night, December 30th, Phoebe is hosting Yearly Departed on Amazon Prime Video. It's essentially like a mock funeral for 2020, featuring an incredible lineup of female comedians, including Tiffany Haddish, Natasha Leggero, and former Last Laugh guest Sarah Silverman, among others. In this clip from the new special, Phoebe eulogizes the worst year ever. While we were all unproductive slob kebabs, 2020 was out here doing all of the things. A global pandemic, mass unemployment, worldwide protest, wildfires, murder hornets, Megxit, Brexit. Yes, all of that happened this year, this 56-month-long year. And although so many were divided this year about whose lives mattered, and if wiping down your groceries is really necessary, and bitch, yes, it was, we did have one common enemy. The iPhone weekly screen time notification. I don't need to be dragged like that. All right, here's to a much better 2021. Have a happy new year, and please enjoy this conversation with the great Phoebe Robinson. How's it going? Are you in New York? Yeah, we're in Brooklyn in our apartment. We've been quarantined since March 6th. It's been yeah, a while. <laughs> I know. What about you? Yeah, I'm in LA, but same. Been pretty much home since then. Getting pretty sick of it, but getting by. Yeah, nice. I was hoping California was like so chill for a while, and now it is not. So we were kind of like feeling cocky a few weeks ago. and I know, yeah. But hopefully something will change eventually, and life will go back to some sort of normal, but hard to see when. I know. Yeah, it's bizarre. Very bizarre. Well, yeah, thank you for doing this. I'm so excited to have you on the show and excited for your new podcast, Black Fraser. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, I think when this episode drops will be hopefully the same day that your podcast starts so yes. people can listen to it now. Tell us about it. What's what's the new podcast all about? Yeah. So I kind of always want to do a podcast, like an advice podcast. And, you know, I just sort of got busy with a production company and stand up touring and stuff. So I was always like, oh, I'll just do it later, later, later. And then when I was doing some of these IG lives shortly after like the uprisings that were happening around George Floyd and like each IG live, for example, like with 
with Chris Hayes, it would be about police brutality. And then, you know, Abby Jacobson, it would be about cultural appropriation or Ijeoma Luo would be about like local politics and activism. And I would just see people like sort of like asking questions throughout in the comments. It really just made me sort of revisit this idea of doing an advice show. And so that's really how it came about. So each episode is based on one theme. You know, we have stuff where I'm chatting with, you know, Whitney Cummings about money and Hassan Minhaj about the collegiate system, the college system. And so then people DM me questions and the guests and I, we can have fun with it. We could also give like really like practical advice. And, you know, I really just sort of landed on the name. I've never seen Frasier. I will (laughs) freely admit I've never seen him with my boyfriend. He's from the UK. He's a big fan of the show. And we just thought it'd be funny. Just call me Black Frasier because the advice element. And that's really how it just came about. You didn't even watch any in preparation for the podcast just to see what it's all about? Not interested? No, I saw some (laughs) screenshots and I was like, I get it. But I do think I want to go and watch the show like in earnest. Yeah, I mean, and maybe someday get someone from Fraser as a guest on your podcast. That would be yeah. pretty exciting. I mean, and my talk to them goal... about how you don't know what the show's about. <laughs> I would watch all of Fraser before I did that, but my goal would be to get Kelsey Grammer on and just yeah. only have him talk about executive producing girlfriends. That would be oh, like the okay. only thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not about how he's a Hollywood Republican. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. He's a rare breed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving on from Fraser to Black Fraser, uh, <laughs> are you someone who your friends have, have come to for advice over the years? Do you feel like you're good at giving advice? Yeah, I feel like I just tend to either give solicited or unsolicited advice. And I always like try to be funny with it and not have it be like I'm telling people how to live their lives. So for me, it felt really sort of kind of like a natural extension of myself to put that into a podcast format. Mm -hmm. What about advice that you've gotten over the years? Is there advice that really sticks out to you in terms of maybe comedy specifically, like how to how to manage your comedy career? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's just been from people along the way, whether it's like a a lit agent or, you know, other people that I work with who just sort of I I like to do a lot of things, but I tend to get um, a little bit overwhelmed when I'm just dabbling in all these. I have probably 25 different jobs. And so yeah. one of the th- one of the things that, you know, I've gotten a couple of times in my career has just been sort of like, not like calm down, but sort of like just take it day by day because I tend to just always look at big picture and then go, how am I going to finish writing a book? How am I going to like self-produce a podcast? How am I going to do all these things? And so the reminder of like, not all of it is going to happen in one day. So if you take the pressure off and really try to enjoy the process, it'll actually go better. And the biggest piece of advice that I've gotten was from my former assistant. Her name is Mai. She now is like the office manager for my production company. She said to me, if you said yes to fewer things, you would actually be a more productive person. (laughs) Is that a problem that you have saying yes to too many things? Yeah. I mean, especially when you start out doing stand-up comedy or if you, you know, I started out doing stand-up comedy and then also freelance blogging, right? So it's like both of those things where you have to hustle and say yes to every sort of gig in order just to make rent. And so I really probably for the first eight years of my career, it was just constantly saying yes to every single thing so I could have some sort of income. And then we got to a place where it's like, you know, now I'm touring and I have a production company and I'm writing books. And it's just sort of like, you don't have to do, like, you don't have to go to Staten Island and do this stand up gig that's going to pay 50, but like, don't do that. It's not a good usage of your time. And so it's allowed me to sort of think about not saying yes to everything because you're scared that if 
if you say no, that all your opportunities will dry up and just sort of trusting the process that like me saying no to these three things will allow me to the space to do this one bigger thing that I'm really excited about. Well, I have to tell you, I'm such a big fan of the podcast that you were doing before this one. So many white guys, kind of an inspiration for me as well as a white guy thinking about, I feel like I did not recognize how white guy dominated the podcast space was until, you know, you were really talking about it and highlighting all these other voices. And so I think it has really encouraged me to, you know, book all different types of guests on my show and really keep it as diverse as possible. Cool. Can you talk about that show a little bit and what you wanted to achieve with it? And I know, is it, is it done forever? Do you feel like, or is it something that you would return to or? Yeah. I mean, shout out to WNYC, which uh, was the home for so many white guys and two dope Queens. And I did four seasons. So many white guys and I love WNYC, but it's really hard. I think sometimes when you are sort of juggling having to like deal with the bureaucracy of sort of like a podcast network. And I think my schedule was also so hectic where I was traveling all the time that it made it really difficult. And I think with Black Frasier, I wanted to sort of do this kind of indie sort of grassroots thing that kind of went back to like how Jess and I started doing Two Dope Queens. Like it didn't even start as a podcast. We're just doing it as a live show, UCB East. We got no money for it. And then we moved to Union Hall and we got like a little bit from the cover that we split with the rest of the comics on the lineups each show. And I feel like the thing that I really like about going indie is that you can really sort of like figure out the perfect voice and tone for your show so that when you go to sell it, it's like, this is a thing that you either are buying this or you're not. And you tend to have this proof of concept, which will allow you to get more money. So it's just sort of like me investing in this new endeavor to get it there. But with so many white guys, I mean, what I loved about it was, you know, coming out of like starting Two Dope Queens around the same time, it was great to do this sort of variety show and a podcast format. But I've always had this gift of gab and love talking to people. And I felt like when I would see a lot of my friends get interviewed, whether it's on print or podcast or TV, it would just be like, Janet Mock, so you're a trans. And, or, you know, like that sort of vibe as though she, there's nothing else about her other than that identity. And so with so many white guys, I really was like, well, there are all these people that I'm so, you know, I admire or I look up to and I really just want to celebrate them and their work and talk about stuff in a really like real and honest way without othering them and you know I'm thinking about like the the Lizzo episode which I think was the first episode and how it was so great to sort of talk to her and we talked about police brutality and Minnesota like it was just like all this stuff that was really really cool and I thought it was just such a great home for it to have to take the pressure off of having to be funny all the time, which I think Two Dope Queens, Jessica and I felt that like we got to bring the jokes and we want to make people laugh. And so many white guys allowed for there to be a little bit of room to breathe. I would like to bring it back. I don't know what iteration because of my Comedy Central talk show, which is also interviewing celebrities. So it kind of didn't make sense to do that with so many white guys for the moment. But my work around with this whole advice thing with Black Frazier is sort of like my way to kind of sneak that in, but really have it rooted in advice. Well, I want to get to Two Dub Queens and the talk show as well. But just one more thing on So Many White Guys. The episode that really stands out to me that I remember best, I think, is the Terry Gross episode, which I oh, just loved. Oh, yay! 
your vibe with, with Terry Gross. And so I mostly just want to know, <laughs> is there any follow-up there? Are you guys best friends now? What's what's going we're on with not, you and Terry? <laughs> we're not best friends because we're both workaholics. So we never got a chance to like visit the other in the city that they live in. So maybe after the quarantine, I'll be like, hey, Terry, Terry, <laughs> let's go to a concert. Let's go grab brunch. What, what can we do? I really loved her interview style. Like I've always looked up to her. Me too. And her show. So to get her on, yeah, like she's just so amazing and smart and she asks really great questions that gets these sort of like memorable moments out of people. So the fact that I was able to get her on So Many White Guys was just really, really fun. And I, I'm just like, oh, I love you, Terry. And I think she's been interviewed like three times in her life and you're one of them. So yeah, she's, she's not doing lucky. it a lot. <laughs> it's very cool. So you mentioned Two Dope Queens, which, you know, is probably the thing that people know you best for now. So how did you, you know, you said it kind of started in these smaller venues. How did you meet Jessica Williams in the first place and decide that this was something you wanted to do with her? Yeah, so this was 2014. I was about six and a half years into just being a stand-up comic in New York, which meant I made no money doing stand-up comedy and I had a day job. But then I quit my day job at the end of 2013 to write on this pilot for the show that like didn't get greenlit. So I just, 2014, I was just like hustling and doing like whatever gigs. And I think I saw like a, I don't think it was Craigslist, but I saw a listing somewhere that the Daily Show was looking for background extras for this piece about black women's hair in the military. And it was not paid. And I was like, you know, that sucks. But at least I can say when I do these small club shows, I can be like, as seen on The Daily Show. Yeah, yeah. And like, <laughs> no one's going to fact check and realize that I was just a background extra with like no lines. So I was like, all right, I could do it. It's only like a, you know, it's like a three hour shoot. That's totally fine. And so like I actually it was, took place at a, a hair salon in Midtown Manhattan. I met her in the elevator and we sort of had kind of like been not in the same circle, but we knew a lot of the same people because I started out doing improv in New York and she started out doing improv in LA and you know sets are kind of like shoots are very boring like there's a lot of like sitting around waiting for lighting changes and all that stuff so we sort of hit it off and we're just talking and I invited her to do my very first podcast ever which is called Blaria which stands for Black Daria and I was like Jessica it's like so legit like White Snack was a guest on it like this isn't <laughs> trash you know <laughs> and she was like okay and so we filmed at my apartment which had like it was like oh my first apartment it was just one of those things where you live in New York and your first apartment is like your first solo apartment is like such trash but you accept it because you're just like that's what living in New York is yeah mine didn't have closets I was that was uh, <laughs> which I didn't realize until after I moved in <laughs> wait where did you put your clothes you know it's, I, I figured it out <laughs> Yeah, so it's just things like that. And my apartment had this massive like mold problem in the my bathroom ceiling. So it was like super jank. She came over and filmed. She said her birthday was coming up and asked her what she wanted to do for her birthday. And she was like, well, you know, I've never done stand up before. Like that would be a fun thing. And I told her, oh, I had this show in the city that I was hosting. We could just co-host it together. So what you see like on HBO or here in the podcast, that's literally 
was from the first show, that sort of back and forth banter. And and that wasn't planned. It was just sort of I was busy doing stand up. Jess was busy doing The Daily Show. So when it came to the show, it was just sort of like, all right, you have three things you want to talk about. I'll have three things that I want to talk about. And then we'll just riff on stage. It'll be fine. And then it ended up being really, really good. And we were both kind of like, okay, that was that. (laughs) there was a spark. This is a hot day. Let's just maybe do this again, you know, and we were not going into it with this is going to be Two Up Queens on HBO. Like that was never the plan. This was just like a side, like a, a fun side thing. And then we just kept doing the shows and like gaining a popularity. And I remember I was like hounding Jason Zittleman over at the New York Times to just like sort of come to a show and write a profile. And he finally <laughs> did. And it was just like really, really cool. And it was just like this nice organic thing that started out just celebrating different comics in the city who we thought should be more famous. Famous than they are. But, you know, I just feel like a lot of times women, people of color, queer people don't necessarily get those opportunities. And so we're like, well, we'll just have them on our show and maybe that'll be fun. And people really like, you know, that'll resonate with people. I've been in New York for seven, 15 years now. <laughs> I love that it went from seven to 15 or was it 17, 15? It was going to be 17, 15. But, uh, And I I love New York and I remember my first apartment in New York when I when I graduated college and I got my first it was a basement apartment with two friends of mine and yeah Do you just like basements or is it friends? (laughs) (laughs) Never mind, we'll talk after. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was my first apartment. It was like all we could afford. It was like in this nurse's, it used to be an old hospital. Mm-hmm. So it was like in the nurse's wing. Haunted. So haunted. It was very haunted. But I, it was. Was it haunted? I don't know if it was haunted, but we definitely like lived in the basement. So that's probably where like the cadavers hung out. I would throw some cadavers down there if I owned an old hospital. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things because, you know, we did our show in New York at the Bell House. It's a 400 seater. And some days we would just like show up with like no makeup on and sweatpants and like a cool like Aaliyah shirt or like a Led Zeppelin T-shirt. And just it was so chill, like we're just hanging with the homies. But then once it got to HBO, we were like, this is the big leagues. Like this is what so many people in comedy like aim for. So I think we definitely felt, especially for the first season, I will say for myself specifically, like I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I did because I was so in my head about it being HBO and we're in this big theater that's like holds 3,000 people and has all this sort of, you know, history behind it. And I just didn't want to screw it up. I'm like, we're on the same network as Game of Thrones and The Sopranos and Sex and City. And I want to make sure our show is right up there with them. And so it did feel kind of wild. And the first night we taped, Jess and I walked out and we got this like huge like standing ovation. I started to tear up a little bit because I never expected any of that to happen. And I was just so grateful that, you know, people love the show so much. And we would get these DMs where it's like, oh, I'm flying from Seattle to New York for the taping or like, you know, my mom was sick and had cancer. And like this show was like a podcast I listened to and it helped me like take my mind off of it. And so us hearing those messages, it kind of made us be like, yes, it is about the moment. It is about HBO and the costume changes and everything. But it is also about that we created a product that really resonated with people. And 
made people feel like stand-up comedy is not just like this white guy thing, you know? And it's something where it's like, oh, I can hear like different perspectives and I can see myself reflected. And so that to me, at the end of the day, I always reminded myself it's about this connection that we were able to build with the people who listen to the podcast and watch the show. Yeah, and it created such a great platform for all the comics who were on it, who mm-hmm. I think didn't, you know, maybe get that same kind of opportunity elsewhere. Are there certain ones that, that stand out to you in your mind that just like really crush in that setting? Yeah, I think of Solomon Giorgio, who was so phenomenal and is a writer on Shrill and High Fidelity. And he just was he was just so funny. And he just sort of like he represented the best parts of the show of like just being cool, calm, going with the flow, not taking yourself too seriously, but like making your presence known. I thought he was fantastic. Shang Wang, I loved. I think of everyone. He's my my parents favorite. They were like, we love Shang Wang, which is like so cute. Michelle Buteau, I thought was fantastic. John Early. I really feel like everyone that we had on the show really just wanted to have a good time. And they're all professionals. They're touring. They're doing festivals. They're acting. So they know like, OK, you want six minutes from me? You got it. You know, yeah. it was so and great. And they gave you like the best six minutes. I mean, I feel like everyone mm-hmm. just really delivered. Um, what about you had so many great guests on the show too? Uh, the sort of celebrity guest portion of it. Were there any moments from that that really... Uh, stick out to you? I think Lupita is just, she was so fun and you just never know because you're like, oh, she's an Oscar winner and like, you know, she trained at Yale. Like, you just never know like if she's going to be like stuffy, but she was like so loose and like freestyle rapped with us and that was really fun. (laughs) I think Jon Stewart was great. You know, he's just, he's like so like New York, New Jersey that it was just like really sweet to like shoot here and have him do it. Lizzo was fantastic. And so I really think we got really, really great people on. And I feel like every celeb that came into it just was kind of had the like, I don't have to be sitting here promoting my project the entire time or telling some like silly story about like my landscaper did this at my house. Like they just got to be goofy and silly. And so I feel like when we did that, it just made it that much more fun because they were all just having a good time as well. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of sort of that late night talk show thing, you have this Comedy Central show that got announced a while ago. And was it supposed to be kind of on now during the summer? Was that the original goal? Yeah, we stopped production. Brutal. (laughs) It was like we're doing a 10 episode order and we shot six and then COVID happened. And so then we stopped down production. And so we're actually trying to see if we can. I know we're in phase four here in New York, which I'm like, LOL, who? Yeah, could go mean? back to phase yeah. one tomorrow, yeah. you know? <laughs> We're trying to see what happens here with COVID. And then also we're, you know, going to make sure we put like a safety plan in place. I would like to shoot the last four episodes this year so we could come out early 2021. But if not, then we'll just shoot it at the beginning of next year and then have it come out next summer or something. What's the sort of concept behind the show? And has it changed in your mind at all, you know, given everything, whether it's the shutdown or the protests or anything? Like, has that made you think about what you want to do differently? 
with the show? Yes. Yeah. So it's called Doing the Most with Phoebe Robinson. And the general premise behind it is that because I am such a workaholic, I actually don't have a ton of life experiences or skills. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to drive. I've wanted tattoo for a decade, never gotten it. I'm afraid of heights. I'm like not the best cook. I'm not really a good baker. I'm always scared of getting injured. I don't know how to play any sports. So it's just all these sort of things I was poking fun at myself about being like so work oriented throughout my 20s and early 30s. And then, you know, I was just like, well, you know what I always found interesting is that celebs when they would do these interviews and they would always have these hidden talents. Right. And you could just see when they were doing their hidden talent, like how sort of calm they got. Like when Lapita was on Two Dope Queens and she was just braiding that hair like because she's a good braider. So it was just like so chill for her. But wait, Lupita, I know you're doing a movie with Jordan Peele while oh, we start. Oh, you're Let's cheating. Just you're like cheating. Just, okay. How was it to work with him? Oh, I loved working with him. He has a very, very um, Lupita. <laughs> strange hey, Lupita, mind. Lupita, Lupita. Lupita. over there, Lupita. There's something talk over there. Talk to us about Jordan Somebody Peele. wants to talk to you over there. Lupita. No, no such thing. Lupita. No such thing. No such thing. to make me slip okay. and say things about all, us that I'm not supposed to. Okay. Except you know that what? it's coming out in on uh, okay, on, on March 15th, okay? <laughs> okay. And I was like, it would be cool to like interview a celebrity, but then when we're doing an activity, they are in a position of being the expert and I'm the uncomfortable one. So they mm -hmm. get that moment to feel really good while we're having, you know, maybe a deep conversation. And then people could see me be sort of like uncomfortable and try and figure things out. And I just thought it was just like a good marriage of sort of like discomfort and seeing celebs in a different, you know, sort of light. And like one of the episodes, Tan France, is teaching me how to bake because he's done like some baking competitions and mm. he's really good at it. And so that was like fun and light. We got to do that stuff. But then it was sort of when we were having the interview portion, we have this segment on the show where <laughs> it was just so silly, but it's like a big spoon, little spoon. So I like get to hold like the celeb <laughs> guest for a little bit. <laughs> Everyone's down them, with that? Yeah, I mean, pre-COVID they were. So yeah. far, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we would have like maybe I asked them like sort of three like deep questions. And, you know, I feel like in those moments, it's been really cool to have like Tan sort of opening up about like, you know, growing up or like Kevin Bacon sharing the story of how he actually met his wife, Kira Sedgwick, like years ago and like didn't remember her. Like, so all these like really fun, fascinating moments that like you don't necessarily get to to see if you're on, you know, a late night talk show and you only have five minutes and you got to do like a, a bit that's going to go viral and do like an interview. I really feel like this show is allowing them to be like their most comfortable selves and people get to learn a little something. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting the way late night TV has been like totally upended by this, you know, both, as I said, with the quarantine, everyone's shooting from home, not in the same place. But then when the protests started, there was this like really intense thing happening on late night TV that I was watching, especially with so many white guy hosts kind of like being like, OK, I think we need to talk about this in a serious way, in a way that we haven't before. Is that something that you were watching at all or were, were aware of? Because I know you also you went on uh, Jimmy Fallon's show pretty early on in that whole thing when he was having a lot of serious conversations all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where it's 
I don't know what it is about this time period where, you know, Black Lives Matter has been around since what, 2013, 2012, maybe, maybe something like that. And it had a lot of momentum then, but like now to see the uprisings happening in a global level to a degree that's never happened before for a civil rights movement like this, it's really sort of exciting. And I think it was just kind of, whether it's Fallon or these other late night hosts sort of acknowledging that like, we can't just go along and pretend like everything is business as usual what we do actually need to have these conversations and I think it's good to have them but I also want them to I want it to be more than just like having a conversation in June you know what I mean like I want it to be like what is the makeup of your staff behind the scenes like how are you operating going forward in your everyday life whether it's at like your school or at your grocery store in your or your neighborhood so I think it's good that this is happening but I don't want it to be the only thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Did you feel weird at all about going on that show to kind of like tell Jimmy Fallon what he should be doing or <laughs> that kind of thing? Honestly, I didn't feel weird. I was like, you know what? It felt like it was coming from a very genuine place. And he was just like, look, there is a lot of, to learn. And I think, you know, for me being a black woman, a lot of times whenever it's there's a discussion about race, people just go to black men as if they're the only people who experience any sort of racism. And like, you know, you look at Black Lives Matter, like that started by black women. And so I think it was really nice to sort of acknowledge that like, you know, black women are doing a lot of the work and to have like my input and my insight alongside you know like w kamau bell is like was really nice i i appreciated Mm. that one thing i was looking at uh what you can't kind of get away from uh if you do uh look at social media is that a lot of people are saying um it's not a uh it's not a black person's job to tell Mm -hmm. white people uh teach allies how to be allies yes and so I was wondering what your take on that is. I mean, is I know it's not your job to teach me how to relate better, but how would you kind of lay it out for anyone who's watching? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, whenever you're curious about something, we are in, we have the internet. And so if people can sort of go on Yelp to find the best tacos and spend like two hours searching for fajitas, you know what I mean? <laughs> No one's confused about how to do that. But when it's about, you know, social justice and really showing up and being an ally and making things better, I feel like there's this tendency to be like, oh, I don't know what to do. I need I need help. And it's like, I already have a job. I can't take on another job. (laughs) I can't do it. Late night TV has been so white male dominated for so long and, you know, not a lot of women, certainly not a lot of women of color. So, I mean, I know your show is not obviously not a traditional late night show, but what does it mean to you to have your voice in that space and and kind of enter that world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really nice to sort of be able to do it. And it makes me think about people like Joan Rivers having her own show or Arsenio Hall having his own show. And it just makes me, I'm not saying I'm on their level, you know what I mean? But it's just more like they have paved the way for someone like me to have this opportunity to kind of do a show that I want that's maybe a little less traditional. Like there's no monologue and there's no like man on the street sort of segments. It's really like an intimate one-on-one thing. Like I always call myself like a a low budget Oprah. So this is like my... (laughs) You know, sort of like Nordstrom Rack version of like a super soul Sunday moment with more dick jokes. (laughs) So I really am excited by it and I really I take it seriously and I want to make sure I'm doing a a really good job and that, you know, the episodes are half an hour. I want people to feel like after they watch it, they feel 
so good and they feel happy and they can like go to bed with a smile on their face. Coming up, Phoebe looks back at some of her earliest TV gigs and later takes Kanye West to task for criticizing Harriet Tubman. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what I want to do now is the next part of the show, we're going to run through uh, some of your credits from over the years, uh, some of my favorite stuff that you've done, and just see if there's a story or, or memory that pops to mind, if that's okay. Okay, great. Yeah, let's do it. So the first one is your late night stand-up debut, which I looked it up, I believe was on Seth Meyers. Yeah, it right? was. Yeah, 2015. What do you remember about that? That was in January. And that was, I had been trying to get a late night spot somewhere. Like, I think before it was like Letterman is the dream. You know, that's just, I think, every comic stream. And then he sort of retired. And I was like, well, that's not happening <laughs> for me. <laughs> And I've been trying to get, you know, a set together and like just it wasn't able to happen. I just couldn't get on a late night show. And then there was an opening. And I think the booker at the time, Bart Coleman, had seen me. I think I'd done like at midnight, a couple other things. And so he had seen me live and he, you know, knew I was working on a set. And he was like, oh, we have an opening in a couple of weeks. Do you just want to give me a set that you have? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I think that night I like just texted a bunch of people. I'm like, can I just run five minutes on your show? And I found the like chill like indie show in Brooklyn maybe like 80 people in the audience and I just recorded my five minute set and I was like okay I'm just gonna submit it fingers crossed and then they were like yeah you got it and I was like oh my god <laughs> and I remember I had my oh god where I get my little power blazer from I think it was like a Zara power blazer <laughs> with like my little like Levi jeans that didn't quite fit all the way and I was just like no matter what happens in my career like no one can say no one could take this moment away from me. Like your first time that you get on TV for stuff that you wrote is just so like special. And the crowd was like so fun and supportive and Seth was so great. And my boyfriend at the time, my ex-boyfriend, no, he is now my ex-boyfriend, but he yeah. was my boyfriend then. <laughs> I was like, wait, how do I do that? It was like, he was there. One of my closest friends, Nori Davis, um, who's also stand up and we went to college together. So we had a lot of friends from like when I was younger there and it was just, it was so great. It was like really one of my favorite, I think, moments from my career. Yeah. I believe one of your first real acting credits was on uh, the pilot of Broad City. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. How did yeah. that happen? And, and what do you remember about it? So I... 
knew Alana and Abby from the beginning of them doing their web series. And Alana and I met doing a stand-up show. And so I had done, they did an episode of their web series that was like set like at a movie theater. And I think it was like Alana and Elliot were being too loud. And I was just one of the movie theater goers who was like telling them to shut up or whatever. <laughs> and then when they, they sold the pilot, they sold the series, they were like, we have a part for you. Would you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'll do anything for you gals. Like, I love you. And it was just like, so I had like this little tiny baby fro and it was like my first time really being on set. And I was like, can I go to craft services and like check? <laughs> I got the bagels and I was just making sure I knew like my two lines I think I had. And I just remember it being a really great set, a lot of high energy, a lot of like really kind people. And so it was cool to sort of be in the first episode of their show that really changed their lives. And so it was nice to be a witness to that. And then did you end up working on the show later in some capacity or? Yeah, I think it was a consultant on season four three and did punch up okay which is like really cool and fun and i think that like a like it maybe a year later i ended up writing on portlandia yeah you wrote on the last season of that show yeah was there a sketch that you worked on on that show that stands out to you now or that was really meaningful um oh my god this was what was this three years ago oh yeah this was three i think it came out two years ago so yeah you're probably working on it like three years ago oh my gosh that is time flies when you're stuck inside i really i think there was one about dating that I, I worked on and just about like how you're having it like they will always make fun of me on Portlandia because I was so thirsty for a boyfriend and I would always come into the writer's room complain about like some dude I talked about on Bumble or whatever and I just wrote a sketch about like having to do like online dating and, and that was like really fun to see something like that make it to air. Hi. Thank God you guys We came as soon as we could. Okay, so I got two phones. I've been texting with eight different people and I'm losing track. Okay, there's one guy. We're just communicating via Family Guy quotes and I'm out of things Stewie said. Slow down. We can handle this. Okay. What's that? Okay. Oh, but... Um... Rachel, welcome to the command center. So I'm gonna handle the deep thinking guys that are looking for something intellectual. I'm gonna handle all the jokey guys who don't wanna come off too serious. Okay, uh, what should I do? Uh, You should handle the guys that immediately send pictures of their dicks or are just here for sex. Got it, okay. But I think my favorite memories were just like Fred and Carrie are just two of the funniest people I've ever been around in my entire life. It was just wild how we would just be like having a conversation about nothing and my stomach would just hurt from laughter. So I think that was like my favorite part was just like how wonderfully funny they were and also how they led a a writer's room and like just such a collaborative, really fun way. And I feel like everyone had a hand in everyone's sketches which is why I'm like, oh, it's really hard to think of like one that I specifically wrote by myself because it was such a team effort on every single sketch. But those sorts of things where you're always nervous when you're like, I'm coming into this writer's room, the two leads, like, are they going to be receptive? Are they going to play favorites? And there was none of that. So I think I'm actually going to be spoiled whenever I'm in another writer's room and be like, if you guys don't act like Fred and Carrie, I'm leaving, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Kevin Bacon's on your show. And I imagine, 
that you met him on I Love Dick. Yeah. And Marfa, which was such a great show. And you were so great on it. And that was like your first sort of like regular role on a show mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. So what was that like uh, being down there? And you shot in Texas, right? Yeah, I was intimidated the entire time. <laughs> I was like, I don't belong here. It's like Kevin Bacon and Catherine Hahn. I'm like, these are two powerhouses. And then they were like so nice and like, and you know, this was like, I think when maybe it was so you can't touch my hair was going to come out. And like, I didn't tell anyone there that I was like, like I wrote a book. Like I was being like, I'm like, oh, I just do stand up and like, that's it. And then. <laughs> I think that like Kevin somehow found out that like I wrote a book and he was like, I want to read your book. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, you wrote a book. Like, why do you tell people? And so I gave him like a copy of the book and then he like promoted it online and was he was like, it's so funny. I love your book. And I was like, what is happening? (laughs) How is this a thing that's going on in my life? But what I will say is like, even though I was very intimidated, I feel like I learned a lot being on I Love Dick. And I think that like one of the things that I learned was like Kevin and Catherine never like even though they were like number one, the call sheet, like they didn't make everyone feel like, oh, I'm number one. And the rest of you guys are just like scrubs or whatever. And so it was just sort of like everyone was treated with respect and kindness. And being a Marfa is like really I was like, it was so cool and interesting. It's like a place I would have never, ever thought to go to. And, you know, you got to meet so many different people like Marfa is very specifically not a place about like I'm going to pursue all my dreams and like sell my TV show and then like do movies like they're real people with like real sort of like life problems and like dreams and stuff and so it was really cool just being around people where Hollywood was like not of any interest to them it was really nice yeah no I'm sure that was an incredible experience you had a solo show that you did called Sorry Harriet Tubman and I was curious just because this is in the news this week what you made of Kanye West's yeah. attacks on Harriet Tubman which came out of nowhere uh, yeah I mean it's one of those things so doing that stand-up tour was so fun and I was gearing up to sort of like do like a whole special with it so now we'll mm-hmm. see what happens um yeah, but yeah the thing about it is like I feel like stand-up and concerts are going to be the last things that come back because it just requires that immediacy of contact and laughter and like participation but yeah that whole thing about just Kanye is just it's one of those things where I want to say I think there's a lot of things that are happening one obviously there's some mental health things that are going on but two I think is really tricky with famous people in particular when they're going through something and then people want to show up for the spectacle, right? Because I think to me, it's like you're sort of treating this person going through a mental health sort of situation as entertainment. And so like, I know people are posting like his speeches online. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to contribute a view to it. But in terms of the whole Harriet Tubman thing, I think that there's just a lot of like, I don't know where this stuff comes from. And like, I just, there's a lot of like anti-black stuff that he says that I don't don't quite get like even the things about like well back in the day I wouldn't have been a slave it's just like you would have like we just would have been like what are you talking about you know it's just such an ignorant thing to say that makes it seem like oh they just didn't try hard enough not to be slaves I'm like have you read a book <laughs> so it just to me I feel like attacking 
these figures who are symbols of freedom, who put their lives in the line to make life better for all black people. I just feel like that is not the hill you want to die on. And I wish he would stop saying stuff like that. I don't know where it comes from. I wish I had the answers, but it really sort of is like, I just think it's harmful rhetoric to be out there. And I think we, if anything right now, we should be celebrating these figures like Harriet Tubman, who helped slaves get to freedom. Like we should be commending that, not like being like, oh, this person's trash. It's like, of all the people, I'm going to say Harriet Tubman is not trash. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like, she's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the last one I wanted to ask you about is you uh, interviewed Michelle Obama five times on her Becoming tour. And I know you guys are friends now, so that's exciting. But from all of your time (laughs) spent with her, is there there a moment that sticks out or that you, that was very uh, special spending with her? Yeah, so I did three shows in the States and the two overseas. It was, what was it, Oslo? Is that it? I can't remember. I have to look at my calendar. But we did two sort of overseas shows. After one of the shows, I think she was just like, hey, um, what are you doing after this? And I was like, what? Like, it just had never gotten <laughs> to this moment. <laughs> you guys hadn't socialized yet. Yeah. Like, we had, like, you know, talked before shows and everything. But, you know, because she's always flying from the, to the next city, this was like the first time where we were back to back cities together. And I was like... I don't know. What are you doing? Like, where is this going? And she was like, oh, well, I'm having a group of people come hang out at, at my hotel after this. And I was just like, was like, oh, my God. Like, I was just like so excited. I was freaking out. And her staff is predominantly like female and women of color. And I was just like the coolest thing. And she was so lovely. And she was just like, we're just hanging out, having grilled cheese sandwiches. Like, I'm like, what is my life? Like, why am I? <laughs> eating cheese with Michelle and I remember because my boyfriend used to be a tour manager he was on the road and I was trying to text him before I was like oh I'm gonna hang out with like Michelle Obama he's like I'm too busy to text and I was like okay I was like but I have like did you see this text like this is huge and he was like I'm too busy I can't get into it and I was like all right and so then when I was hanging out with Michelle at the like after show event or whatever and he FaceTimes me and I go are you too busy for this and then I like turn the <laughs> camera he sees Michelle he's like oh 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 hi how's it going (laughs) and so it's just really cute that she was just so fun and lovely and I think the thing that I like most about her is a lot of young people would come to the first of all she was packing arenas so it'd be like 20,000 people are showing up to hear someone talk about a book which like never happens and there'd be a lot of like college age people that would come and to just see the sort of time she spends and and sort of like nurturing them and listening to them. And then she would always like try to do like some other activity, whether it's like surprising a book club or going to some sort of after school program and just her really paying attention to the youth and supporting them and wanting to tell their stories. And it just really touched me how much she cared when she could just been like, I'm famous, I'm rich, I'm just going to show up and do my thing and leave. And it was like she wanted to leave her mark on every community that she visited. And I was just like, wow, what? an icon. It was really, really cool. Have you been in touch with her at all during quarantine? Do you know how she's doing? What's what's going on? Is she baking? Yeah. <laughs> 
I think the last time we texted was for Mother's Day because I just sent her flowers. And so it's just like, oh, sweet. Well, I try to because I'm always like, I'm not going to have kids. But like so many people I know have kids and I see how hard the work is. So Mother's Day, I'm like, everyone's getting flowers. So that was like the last time we chatted. And it was just like, you know, I think like here and there during COVID is just sort of like, hope you're well, hope you're safe, blah, blah, blah. I know everything is really nuts right now. So that's kind of been the text messages lately because I think honestly no one thought we would still be in this position you know yeah but yeah she's she's the best um so we end every episode by asking comedians who is a comedian in your life who has made you laugh the hardest could be someone that you know someone that you've seen on stage who's someone that really just gets you you know i feel like there are two people ali wong mm-hmm and Nate Bargatze. Have you seen his Netflix special? Yeah, he was on this podcast a little while ago. He's great. I've watched that special like five times and <laughs> I laugh so much. Like those two, I'm just like, I will show up for anything that they do. Yeah. They're great. Um, and then for you, we're going to have a bonus final question, which is which U2 song best represents where you are in your life right now? That is a wonderful question. <laughs> Wow, I've never been asked that before. Okay, what UT song? Okay, can I can I look at my phone and look mm-hmm. at my? Yeah, you can do some. Oh gosh, this is like I, I don't want you to rush an answer. You know, you gotta <laughs> get it right. Do you care much for UT, or are you sort of like I'm good? I like them. I'm not like you, but yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, I think that's good for everyone. I'm kind of a I'm kind of a mess. I mean, I'm a fish fan, so you know, I get shit too. So. Oh yeah, it's I'm always like, you know what? Just let people enjoy what they want to enjoy. You yeah. know. <laughs> Okay. Oh, oh, okay. What represents me right now? I mean, I'm not wearing my finest clothes right now. So maybe ooh, I'm going to say beautiful day. I think that is a song that always sort of like uplifts me. And I think that in this next or like this current phase of my career, like I think I'm definitely thinking about like, yes, of course, I want to make people laugh. Yes, of course, I want this stuff I do to be a platform for other people to express themselves. And I think now I'm adding a third factor where it's like, I want people to feel hopeful and uplifted after consuming whatever content of mine they're consuming. It doesn't mean I'm like pretending like everything's amazing because I'm not. But I think it's more like just remembering that there is some good in the world and that, you know, you can love yourself and you could strive for better. And that even though life is really hard, it doesn't have to be hard 24 seven. So I think that song represents that for me. Well, that is beautiful. And it's probably the YouTube song that I know the best because my acapella group sang it in college. Oh, you're an acapella group? I was. Yeah, it's been a wow. long time. But, <laughs> That's but that awesome. was our YouTube cover. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this and uh, congrats on the new podcast and everything. And it was just such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, get to meet you in this way. And uh, maybe we can meet someday in person. Yes, this was so fun. Thank you so much. I'm going to make sure I do this recording right. There's no Yes, that was my college acapella group singing Beautiful Day. You're welcome, Phoebe. Thanks again to Phoebe Robinson for that really fun conversation. Her new special, Yearly Departed, will be available to stream tomorrow, Wednesday, December 30th, only on Amazon Prime Video. 
And you can subscribe to her latest podcast, Black Fraser, wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, if you have enjoyed The Last Laugh this year, it would mean a ton to me if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next year with an all-new episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.